That's the latest from the WOR Newsroom, Lester Smith reporting. I'll be back with another full 15 minutes of news tonight at 11. We're here in the cave of the 2,500-year-old brewmaster to prove there's more spirit to Ballantine beer. Sir, just taste these three different beers and tell us honestly which is the best. I would be very handsome, too. Here's the first. This one is a loser. I see. And uh, it's not the Ballantine. And now would you try the second one? How All about right. this? I'll try this one. Hey, this is no good, too. This has nothing. I'm sorry. I hope it's not the... It's, it's not, not the Ballantine. Ballantine. Good, I'm glad. <laughs> and now, sir, how about this one? Oh, my tongue just threw a party for my mouth. This is a spirit. This beer has spirit. This has pep and pip. And this is a winner. I hope it is... It is, <laughs> it is it your is. beer, right? It's I know it. it. I, I wouldn't hurt you. If you want to start living a life that's livelier, live it with spirit. Valentine Beer. There's more spirit to it. This is WORAM and WORFM in New York. Are we on the radio? Really? Are we on? Hey, Skip, are we on? Oh, boy. Holy smokes, I get so nervous. I mean, you know, I get nervous looking at this microphone. Oh, well, please. It's a very scary business, radio. Do you talk into this thing here, huh? Just the way I talk up loud like that? What's all that music you're playing, huh? And once again, <laughs> I'm here. Rising out of the great mire of the depths, once again, we I'll be loving you. You know, I feel like tonight doing an all-request program. I'm making a few birthday dedications. Uh, <laughs> you know, telling you what time it is every 30 seconds and, and playing Norman Luboff choir music. And uh, once in a while, singing one of my old favorites. Is anybody out there like to hear me sing Trees? Oh, that's a beautiful thing. A nest of robins in my hair. What, what, isn't that the way it goes? A nest of robins in my hair? Well, what do you mean it doesn't go that way? Uh, let's see. Only That's one of my favorites. I also sing the song of India. That's very good. I do. Well, why is it nobody wants good music anymore? Uh, one of my favorite songs is a song that I've often sung many times. I'll never forget the first time I achieved great public success singing this song. It was in the shower. It was in a place called Camp Crowder. And um, there was a little club that I was part of. And there were 192,000 other guys in the same club down there. But it was a little club. And I'm in the shower, and I first, st I remember, I first started to sing this song, why I started to sing it, but it was an instant success. Tramp, 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 the boys are marching, marching off again to war. It was a fantastic instant success in the Company K. And uh, whenever things got dreary and rotten and things got tired around the old campfire, uh, they used to ask me to sing that song. And for those of you who are, hey, listen, uh, talk to him later, will you? I've got work to do with this poor guy in there. <laughs> Go out, get out of here. You had all day to talk to this klutz. You can talk to him after the show. Now get out of here. <laughs> 
Why is it that the engineers sit out in the control room and don't talk to each other for hours on end, and the minute one gets working, they all... <laughs> get out of here. Come on. I know you from back in the days when you used to read comic books. Trump, 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 the boys are marching. Yeah, sometimes, you know, you feel like doing it. You do. You just feel like doing a show. And I feel like that today. It's, you know, it's middle of the week, and uh, there's a certain kind of irreverence that begins to creep into your soul. And I suspect that cynicism is at its greatest height in the middle of the week. Don't you think so? I mean, you have already, you have forgotten last weekend. You've, you've written it off, you know. It didn't work out, so you wrote it off. And you're not yet excited enough about the forthcoming weekend, which will begin to set in about late Thursday. You get start to get unless you're an executive. If you're an executive, you're already out on your weekend. Uh, I know some executives that start their long weekend about Tuesday, around three o'clock in the afternoon. And uh, <laughs> I know one. Guy, <laughs> I know you don't want me to get personal here. I know one guy that that. Have you ever seen a stone? You know when you when you throw a stone over the water. And it skips over the top of the water. That's the way he works. Uh, all the time that the stone is in the air, he's out having coffee, drinks, walking around the street, hollering at clients. You know, that that's called being out on the street. Uh, all the rest of the time, those little points, doing, he hits the office here about every 13 seconds for about 12 and a half milliseconds. He's in and he's out. Well, uh, that, that, that that's the kind of world that so many of us are living today. Hit and run world, you know. It's a world where... Uh, yeah, a disinvolvement or uninvolvement is a major problem, right? Most people even find they can't get involved with chicks. I find many guys like that. Uh, chicks that can't get involved with men. And there's many chicks like that. Uh, guys that can't get involved with the rain that bugs them when it rains and it bugs them when it doesn't rain. Uh, <laughs> and so, in the end, ultimately, men find that the one thing they can get involved with is machines. One kind or another, that machine... Oh, yeah. Oh, listen, listen, Skip, I shouldn't say this to you, but I know a guy who has had a fantastic love affair with a stereo preamplifier for over three weeks. He hurries home from work, his eyes shining, you know. He can hardly wait to get his hands on them knobs. <laughs> it's sad. He used to try to grab other kind of knobs, but those that was years ago. And... Uh, just a song at twilight, while the lights are low. Please bring me some mood music in there. La-da-da, mood music to live and exist on in the 20th century. Bye. Oh, that's very good. That's very typical. Bring it up there. We're saluting our life. Now hold that in abeyance there, Skip. We'll need that. Now, uh, when when I get on one of these little things, oh, you know, speaking of uh, just skipping over life, uh, the world, and the way it is, uh, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why people want to go to plays, why people have an insensate desire to read novels, because all the people in the novels have uh, genuine, understandable, or genuine, genuine fictional, understandable, <laughs> surrealistic hang-ups that have nothing to do with guys walking around and scratching and, uh, you know, making the scene uh, as best they can in the chock-full-of-nuts world that we all live in. And, and so a guy likes to go to, a, go to a movie and watch people who uh, do things that nobody does in life, you know, do things that, like be Beatles. 
you know, even the Beatles in real life aren't Beatle Beatles. You know, they they have the same problems everybody else has. You know, like they stand in line and buy socks and stuff like that. You'd be surprised. <laughs> everybody likes to think they live they live this life. It's like real life elves have come to the come to come to being. Uh, has uh, you know that, that has occurred to me that our desire to to uh, to create uh, an elfin uh, fairyland has taken hold so so fantastically you know i mean that literally i don't mean uh, I'm, I'm not referring to the edward alby tennessee williams axis that's not at all i'm not talking about campsville here gang uh, immediately uh, of 18,000 people all of a sudden turned their radios up on fire island <laughs> i'm not talking about that kind of world i'm talking about the world of the gnomies and the elves i mean real elves i'm not talking about lexington avenue baby i'm talking about elf elves it is really a strong urge, uh, and, and, and it's taken off in America to the point now where people will seriously look out at you from the TV screen and say, American Airlines, the official airlines for Disneyland. I mean, Disneyland's got an official airlines now, like Italy has an airlines, you know, and like other great recognized powers. I'm wondering when, when the day will come when Disneyland will have an ambassador at the U.N., or when communists will try to take over. Uh, <laughs> you know, there'll be a... <laughs> there'll be a... <laughs> well, uh, don't, 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 be, uh, don't laugh. You know, when you're, in, when you're in some of those Far Eastern countries, you feel like uh, you are in Disneyland. Matter of fact, uh, this is one of the reasons why so many people like to go to Siam, Thailand. Uh, because it, it has a certain Disneyland quality about it. It really does. You know, little funny little buildings with little bells ringing on them and guys walking around, you know, with little orange robes and they have little tigers all over the place carved out of ivory and stuff. And you feel like you're in the middle of Disneyland. And yet there they are. You know, they're fist fighting it out on the streets and guys are walking around with signs that say shame in Thai. Now, uh, uh, this, this urge and this desire to live in, the, in a kind of Disneyland world is a very strong one. There's no question about it. And yet we really do. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, once in a while, it might do good, it might do just a little uh, good, if I were to give you a, an illustration of the kind of letters. Would you like to hear some of the letters I get occasionally just out of the blue that are not fan letters? I'm not talking about fan letters. I'm not talking about gripe, but just a letter. Here's a guy who writes, Shepard, good story on the Jabaros. Sounded like my life. Some of my distant relatives must have been Jabaros. Come to think of it, even the close ones. Watch out for the guy who jams chamber pots over people's heads. I can't get mine off. <laughs> now, that's, that's a typical letter. Here's one. Dear Gene Shepard, come to... I am off to Buenos Aires next Monday in search of peanut butter. That's all the thing says. And he is. It uh, was mailed from uh, Portugal, believe it or not. Now, <laughs> I'd arrive from Portugal. There it is. See, uh, here's one here. Now, I think you you might like this one. That makes you wonder how Shepard gets this strange surrealistic world. Uh, you know how he he has this. Here's one. This was sent all the way from someplace. I don't know. Would you please prepare my mood music in there? All it says is a simple word, simple phrase. Really, it says, "Get on the stick, Shepard." Signed, you know who. <laughs> Man, I've been trying to get on the stick all of my life. <laughs> all right, cut it there. Listen to this one. Now, if you want to hear how henpecked... Uh, now, this is... this is a, and it, Of course, this also illustrates a lot of nuttiness uh, underground that is, is extant. Now, one thing I wonder about 
Uh, I wonder, this is something maybe the listener can answer far better than I can. There are two kinds of minds. Uh, there is the mind that can appreciate tongue-in-cheek satire, and there is the other kind of mind that takes everything absolutely literally. Literally. And so one night at, at, the, at the limelight... I, I, you might have heard the show. One night at the limelight, here's, you know, 18,000 people there, and they're all laughing and hollering and yelling. And uh, in the middle of the show, I said, well, it's obvious that I am not appreciated. It is obvious that, that I am not. And here I'm such a wonderful, sweet guy, and uh, I'm such a lovable person, that it's quite obvious that these people here don't really appreciate the deep, inner, perceptive, sensitive me. Right? And the crowd went, boo, 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 ray, ray, boo, boo, whoa. I said, that's right, you don't appreciate me. Well, I get this letter, and it's, it's, uh, it's all, you know, it's all very official letter, and it's about 18 pages long. It says, dear Mr. Shepard, I heard you the other night, and I want you to know that I appreciate you, and please come to my little house over here in Jersey, and we'll make a home and board for you. And that any time... <laughs> Yeah, and I'm so sad, you know, so sorry that, 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 that this is the literal mind at work. And now you think that I'm inventing this. I'm telling you the God's honest truth. It, it really is true. And, and, and she had this long, detailed list of instructions on how to get to her house out in this little town in Jersey and that from now on she'd take care of me that I could come there and I'll stay there and she'll always make a friendly, comfortable little home for me and that no longer will I have to worry about somebody not loving me. <laughs> and she was very serious. Now, you say, how did I know she was serious? Well, I'll tell you what happened. About two or three weeks after that, another letter arrives and it says, Dear Mr. Shepherd, and this was a, a letter that arrived with special delivery and it was insured. So that I had to get it, see, and it, you know, and I had a sign for it. All said, it says, "Dear Mr. Shepherd, I don't like to cause trouble, but there must be someone in that organization there who is unfriendly to you and is stealing your mail, because I invited you to come and live with me three weeks ago and have not heard from you yet. I had your bed all turned back, I had your room prepared, and I had a pot of chicken soup on the stove for you." Now, uh, someone must be stealing your mail. Now, uh, as I said in my first letter, uh, that I love you if no one else does, and I know that large numbers of people out there have laughed and made sport of you, and that I am here... Well, I, I, there I was. I was confronted with the reality of the literal mind. Now, I'm not making fun of that lady at all here, but I'm saying that this is an actual occurrence. Would you want to hear some more of them? All right, listen to this one now. This is another letter. And now, the first thing that most of you out there will feel is that these are tongue-in-cheek. Well, I have found through long, hard experience that very few of them are. <laughs> very, very few. You know, I, I'm, I'm fascinated to find out in, in going, you know, just walking through life. It's been a very interesting lesson to me that so many things which are hailed as tongue-in-cheek are not that at all. When you get close enough to realize that the guy that's doing this thing is not kidding, everyone has been kind enough to say, gee, what he's doing can't be as rotten as it is. It is. I mean, this is an awful thing he's doing up there. What a rotten singer. He must be tongue-in-cheek. So the next thing you know, he's a famous satirist. Then he becomes... 
<laughs> Tongue in cheek. I'll tell you an example of that. One of the first one of the, uh, one of one of the first things I noticed about the Beatles was that they were very hurt. <laughs> that large numbers of people in America thought that they were all that they were doing. You know, it was all tongue in cheek, and they were putting on the audience and all that stuff. They were very hurt. I remember Paul saying, "Well, I think we're done." I was all oh, tongue in cheek jazz. Is the way he put it out, you know, because so many people had written up uh, the the Beatles as being tongue in cheek. Well, uh, on the second go round, what happened was they realized that they had a real good gimmick, and that, that that they should encourage the people in thinking that they were tongue in cheek. And so then it became one of the chief things with the act. But it really wasn't true in the beginning. They were not putting anyone on, and they were surprised to find they were just four very mediocre rock and roll singers who had a particular aggressive quality about them, and that quality was generally misinterpreted by people who saw it as being tongue-in-cheek. It was not that at all. Uh, speaking of, uh, of the unintentional tongue-in-cheek, this is WOR AM at FM New York. Strangely enough, WOR is not putting anyone on. You know, uh, you know how, how the myth has grown that the New York Times has a, an aggregate or a corporate sense of humor. Many people think that the New York Times is tongue-in-cheek. Well, the closer I have gotten to the New York Times and many people over there, the more I find that this is another one of those myths, that, that, when, <laughs> that the New York Times is, is really just being very serious, and they're so serious sometimes about a trivial subject that everybody's sitting on the outside, oh, come on, they must be putting, what a great tongue-in-cheek piece, and it isn't that at all. This, uh, this tongue-in-cheek thing. Now, listen to this one now. You, hearing this, you would think this is a tongue-in-cheek letter. But I can assure you, uh, it is not. Uh, and I can tell you, uh, the only way I can tell you that I can assure you this is my experience with long... I probably, over the years, I don't know how many letters I've received over the past 10 or 12 years. How many would you estimate, Lee? Oh, it's pretty hard to say. But, but I, I can say probably it's... Maybe close to fifteen, twenty thousand, maybe more letters. Now I don't know how many people have gotten that many letters in their lifetime, you know, uh, <laughs> of one kind, and from total strangers. That's the thing that makes it so fascinating, uh, and and all kinds of letters. Gee, they, they they range they range all the way from 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 angry letters. One lady is is uh, is is so angry. She says I'm she says I'm anti women. She has she's going to carry it to the justice department, and she will wind up picketing uh, <laughs> downstairs. <laughs> Shepherd is, yeah, and by the way, she keeps calling. She keeps calling women a minority group. Well, as a matter of fact, this is not quite true. Uh, women in America are a majority group, if there's ever been a majority. They're a majority not only from the standpoint of population. You you know, don't you, that women outnumber men in America, and we passed that mark about five years ago. It was a very important mark. It was the first time that America passed that particular milestone. You know, and they say that this is true, uh, strangely enough, uh, that, that in any, in any uh, frontier society, men outnumber women. For some reason or other, when man is faced with great adversity, more boy children are born than female children. And so out on the frontier, uh, during the days of the growing of the West, almost all kids that were born were, were male children. And uh, this has been true in other uh, countries where they're faced with... Uh, no one can quite explain why this is either. This is one of the great unexplained things about creation. That, that uh, in places like Israel, more men are born than women. Frontier society. Uh, in, in certain frontier societies, the shortage of women is so great 
that women become almost an object of total worship. Uh, this is true. In, yes, it is quite true. In some in, in some tribes that live very hard, tough existences and have for centuries, a girl child is a rarity, a genuine rarity, almost like a like a green camel or something. And one was when one is born, uh, this is a great, uh, fantastic uh, event. Now, uh, they said that there is a certain kind of uh, anthropologist who said that America really made the transition from a frontier society to an urban, sophisticated society when we began to produce more females than males. So, lady, if you think women are in a minority, you are speaking only for yourself, uh, that, that women are in the majority in America. And furthermore, women control large numbers of of uh, areas of existence itself. Almost all buying today is done by women. Uh, and there's no question about it that, that it was about 15 years ago that the first candidate began to realize the power of the women vote. Uh, that women vote uh, in, in different ways than men vote. For example, it is well known that, that Eisenhower, who was a, a kind of avuncular uh, and or slash father figure, uh, appealed tremendously to women. He was a war hero. He was a he was a general. He was he was a a, a kind of combination uh, uh, elder uh, elder uncle elder father. He was a lot of things to women that he never was to men, and so millions of women voted for Eisenhower purely on that premise, and uh, they began to realize that uh, that women uh, have a tremendous impact on the voting habits of the country that has little to do with the policies of the person involved the actual statements he makes about various issues. Uh, he, he's attractive as a man in one shape or another, one form or another. Uh, and this, uh, this, uh, the idea that women are a minority group in this country uh, it really is an idea that is a holdover from the late 1800s and early 1900s. And any woman who writes and says, Shepard, you are, you are taking off on a minority group is a sad person because they don't really recognize the world around them and realize the power today, and a real power. It's, it's a recognized fact today that most of, or a large percentage, of American investment is in the hands of women. Total hands of women. I don't mean partial, but I mean total hands of women. It is quite true that most of the executives in major corporations are men, but they are ultimately controlled by the stockholders who, to a large extent, and to a greatest, the greatest percentage, in other words, over 50 percent, are women. Now, I'm not complaining about this, but uh, this is... No, I'm not. No, no, seriously. Interestingly enough, every time you point out these figures, people interpret that as complaining about that. So, again, that's that old problem of if you ever have to point out truth, people say, what do you mean? Are you anti-woman? No, no, no. I'm just merely pointing out today that the masculine male is becoming more and more a minority group in America. He really is. And he's becoming an embattled group in large ways because there aren't many people talking for his side of the picture, for his world. Uh, and so you, uh, if, if you're interested, I can say this, uh, if, if you're interested in how ads are put together, how big advertising television campaigns are put together, they are put together today almost exclusively with two ideas in mind. I don't know how I got on the subject, but do you, are you interested in it? Uh, that I've sat in on many, uh, many uh, uh, an advertising discussion uh, with big top executives who are working in 
in important money, like they'll put down, you know, when, when a company is going to about to spend $12.5 million in, in three weeks on a campaign, it's not fooling around. Uh, it, it really, it, this, is, this is the big game. Uh, it, is not, it is not playing penny ante. And so for that reason, you'll learn a lot about our society by listening to what is done and how it happens and why it works. Now, most advertisers today aim, and I'm talking about major advertisers, I'm not talking about little penny ante things. I'm talking about people that are selling what they call hard goods. That means automobiles. Uh, that means major investments in a family. Uh, that means uh, things like uh, even homes. That means things like uh, uh, major insurance policies. Uh, that means things like, uh, well, whatever people spend a big percentage of their income on. When a, when a, when a family's going out to buy, uh, let's say, a, a refrigerator, this is a, major, uh, this is a major step. When a family is deciding to buy a car, obviously that's a major step. Uh, when a family is going to invest in insurance, that's a major step, too. A really major step. Uh, so they have they have begun to realize that years ago, when men made those decisions, really did, or at least had a hand in them. When when a man would decide, he would decide who the insurance man, he, who the company is going to be. They used to appeal to men. Uh, they they used to not only appeal to men, they used to describe the workings of their company. They used to talk about uh, how uh, what kind of interest they pay, what kind of clauses they've got in their policies. And in other words, they appeal to the man on the business standpoint. After all, buying insurance is a business proposition. It should be. And so they 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 did in those days appeal to men on that standpoint. Buying an automobile. Let's face it. Uh, let's face what an automobile is. Uh, an automobile is a is a giant machine. It's a machine, you know. Let's face it; it is a piece of mechanical equipment, and uh, as such, it should perform as a piece of mechanical equipment. It should be uh, easy to control. It should be trouble free. Uh, it should be efficient. That means for uh, X amount of intake of fuel and money and depreciation, one thing or another, you should have X amount of product or outgo. In short, it should be an efficient machine. Uh, and so they used to appeal to men. Again, they, they, they felt that men know about machines, you know, men. And they did, you see. Most men worked in factories and one thing or another in those days and had intimate contact with machines of one kind or another. And so uh, they would go to a man and they would talk to the man about the kind of differential that was in this car that set it off from other cars, uh, the kind of braking system that was in this car that made it better than other cars. Or they would talk about the kind of steering system that was an, an, an advantageous steering system over the other steering systems and so on. You'd be amazed at, at reading some of the commercials and some of the ads uh, from the 20s and 30s about automobiles. You really would be surprised at the amount of information that they gave about the machine they sold. Well, then came the great change in the American society for... Now, again, I'm not, I'm not anti it. I know a lot of people... I'm just reporting on this from the standpoint of the man who spends $12 million for a campaign. They began to realize only two people are really ultimately important in making a sale, a major sale. Two people. And that is, of course, the woman and the teenager. They control the house now. Uh, they control the house in, in the f many, many subtle and ultimately uh, decisive ways. 
that hardly, uh, very few people have really documented. And so uh, you, you talk about insurance. It's fascinating to find that we have now moved into the age of the personalized insurance approach where uh, the insurance people are, are hurriedly going all over the country looking for people that appeal to women to come on the screen uh, and sell them insurance uh, in, in subtle ways. Uh, <laughs> uh, selling them insurance. They have nothing to do with what kind of insurance it is and what it is, uh, whether it works or whether it's got this clause or that clause. Somehow the, the father image has crept into the insurance and so now big hands, you know, you're safe in the hands of, uh, that kind of thing, which has nothing whatsoever to do with what kind of insurance it is or whether it's, uh, you know, and I'm not making any comment on any specific com uh, company or country uh, here. Uh, I'm not talking about America in general. This is happening all over the world. Now, another thing now, what about automobiles? Is it obvious, isn't it obvious that, that cars are today sold to women? They know that if the woman is sold in the house, forget it, that that's the end. That there is no, uh, that there is no, that's like the Supreme Court. <laughs> uh, that, that, uh, and, and, and for those of you who think that I'm, I'm talking off the top of my hat, I'm sure immediately I'm going to be dodgy with letters and say, no, that's not true. In our family, we discuss things thoroughly. Well, I wonder. I'd like to sit in that family and find out whether they do or not. I don't get many letters from men that say that. Uh, they're almost always from women. Now, I was reminded of that. Here's a sad letter that came in here. It says, Dear Shep, I have been, and again, you're going to say it's a tongue-in-cheek. It is not. It's absolutely true. I can tell by the way the letter is written, and I can also tell other things about it that uh, there's no point to go on the air uh, and, and discuss these things. But you, you get to know, after you've listened and read thousands of letters over the years, you get to know whether a guy's tongue-in-cheek, whether he's a kook, or whether he's really just you know, reporting on his world, and he's really writing to you. That's the significant letter. The kooks are always with us. You know, you throw that aside. Uh, the the tongue-in-cheek guys, you can tell immediately. There's always one or two phrases that pop out, and you know that he's tongue-in-cheek, no matter how hard he fights against it. Then there's the other kind. Listen to this one. Dear Shep, I have been a habitual and enthusiastic listener for several years. However, I have encountered a problem. I got married two months ago, and my wife doesn't like the show. Every time I get her to listen, you do a depressing monologue. <laughs> that means I talk about something real, usually, see? That means a depressing monologue. Uh, you do a depressing monologue or tell a story about something that turns her off and she turns W-O-R off. You can help me. We are having a small party here on August 27th, a Friday night, and if you're not busy, perhaps you'd like to drop in and convince her of what a nice man you are. Now, he's ser can, he, can you imagine me going out and convincing this lady that she should listen to me? <laughs> can you imagine Steve Allen going, uh, going across town to, to a little town in, in, in Queens someplace? He goes out to Babylon somewhere to convince a lady that she really should watch the Steve Allen show because he's basically a nice man. <laughs> But the but the but the story is oh and, and I, you can always tell when they're sincere they include their address detailed instructions on how to get there he really expects me to show up out there that night to talk to this uh, Shrike that he's married to now now uh, these uh, this 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 is a this is a common problem that that uh, that 
and they, they found this very true in television and radio. You know, very few shows even consider the males, uh, the males listening or viewing habits because they know that he hasn't much to say about that television set in the house. That, that many a male ha has an embattled, unbelievably difficult time getting to some place where he can watch a ball game that he wants to see. This is a fact. They, they, <laughs> this is a recognized problem. And for that reason, most of the uh, baseball teams, one thing and another, that, and I'm not saying that men necessarily are only involved in baseball. Not true. Of course not. Uh, but they have found that even those shows to be viewed must be directed at women. And so uh, you'll find that a lot that the Mets do today are directed towards the women listeners or the viewers. Uh, and they know that if they get that, that if they get that person involved, then the men will come along, or the men will, you know, they, they'll they'll be able to see the game, and that's about the extent of it. Now, <laughs> you, uh, when when they're sitting down, and and now they're beginning to find another interesting trend that has that has uh, begun to take uh, effect. I'm reporting on on the. Uh, are you interested in hearing a report on 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 the world of? of that kind of thing or not. I hope I'm not boring you. That guy's probably turned me off already. This is called a depressing monologue. But this is the kind of thing that really, I rarely hear people discuss. Uh, there has been a, an interesting and I think a very, very uh, fascinating change too that has occurred within the last five years. And they've seen that the woman is beginning to slip now out of the picture as the final arbiter in the house. And, and the teenager has literally taken over the reins of the final statements now. Now, have you noticed how many commercials on the air today now show a 16-year-old girl saying, well, well, yes, well, Dad, here, uh, uh, the trouble with you is that you're not trying this toothpaste. You see, this, in other words, the teenager now is the knowledgeable one, one in the house. This has reversed the old concept of the child learning from the parent. Now it's exactly the opposite. And you will find in commercial after commercial, uh, a 16-year-old girl comes down to the car. You know, there's one sad one where the guy is getting ready to go to work and he looks depressed and he says, oh, gee, I don't know whether I'm going to make this sale. Oh, I'm so worried. I've got to make this sale. Oh, wow. And then you see this, this, this dewy-eyed girl opens the door to the bathroom and she says, Father. And he says, well, gee, what is, what is it, Phoebe? Oh, wow, I'm so worried. She says, Father. Your worries would be over. You see, I don't know how to exactly say this, Dad. Oh, Daddy, oh, boy, old sock you. Uh, I don't know how to say this, but, uh, well, it's, you, you should really try this mouthwash. You see, this takes care. And he says, you mean, you mean me? She says, well, I didn't want to say it, Dad, but, well, here's this poor klutz. He's lived to 42 years old, and he doesn't even know how to, to brush his teeth. He does not know how to, 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 to get the garbage out of his mouth. And his 15-year-old daughter, by some magic, knows more about living than he does. She knows about all these things. Uh, and then there's another side where grandmother is even told. Here's this old doll who has lived to 72 years old, and grandmother is told by this beardless youth uh, about, about her bad breath or whatever it might be, you see. <laughs> so you can see now that they realize very strongly that in the house uh, today, if, if anybody's going to make a decision on what toothpaste is going to be used, it's going to be the kid. 
because the kid is really hung. You know, they found over the years that, that you know, the, the older people dislike commercials. The curious thing about uh, the current generation is that the commercial is one of the most important parts of the show for them. That they don't like a show unless it's, it's, unless it's got commercials. Did you know that? That I get letters from all kinds of kids who, who the only thing they comment on are the commercials that are on my show. Yeah. So how about whipping one up there and giving them that little security? Hit it there, Dad, the money button there. <laughs> Miller High Life in Pop and Pour Cans. Distinctive Miller High Life in Pop and Pour Cans. Just pop and pour Miller High Life, the champagne of bottled beer. No opener needed. And inside every can, enjoy the hearty yet light goodness of Miller High Life. Brewed from a century-old recipe, only in Milwaukee. Miller High Life always gives you that perfect taste in beer every time. Always a bright, clear taste. Unequaled, unquestioned, unchanging. Now you can enjoy refreshing Miller High Life in pop and pour cans. Pop and Pour Miller High Life. Always sparkling, flavorful, distinctive. Now in Pop and Pour cans. Listen, I got something to say about uh, about that whole commercial world uh, <laughs> that that I find. Uh, of course, I think I think uh, people in general uh, do not keep up with the with the uh, publications that really tell them what what's happening in this world. For example. Uh, not many people read electronics magazines. Well, when you read electronics magazines, you will find little subtle things which are far more significant about what's going on in our civilization than if you, say, read uh, nice, bland, friendly, so-called concerned magazines like, uh, oh, The Reporter, Harper's, uh, Time, Life, you know, all these things, uh, who spend most of their time really reporting on Anne Margaret, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Well, listen listen to this little bit here. Now, this is a very interesting little piece. It comes out of Radio Electronics, and this is the August issue. The most recent addition to the ranks of addictive TV watchers are four gorillas at the Bronx Zoo. During most of last winter, and this is a, a scientific report on the results of it, during most of last winter, they had a 16-inch TV set. The TV was installed when the curator noted that the animals taken in from their outdoor quarters and now confined in cages became bored, cranky, and quarrelsome. The TV changed all that. Only one of the gorillas showed any further tendencies to heckle his cage mates. And that, one keeper said, was only during commercials. This obviously was the smart gorilla in the crowd. Uh, <laughs> but here is the significant statement. Favorite programs for gorillas are any that show human forms moving about rapidly. They like cowboy and Indian and teenage dance shows. Well, I say this also applies to all the other gorillas that I know. Uh, that that uh, that the only that, believe me uh, <laughs> that the only gorillas are not those found swinging from trees. Uh, a lot of gorillas I know today buy mustangs. Uh, I know I know many a gorilla that drinks that that drink that uh, makes you think young, and I know many gorillas that sit there for hours just watching human forms moving rapidly about to the accompaniment of forty fours, their mouths hanging open and sticking bananas in their traps. Well, now the the thin line that separates us from the gorillas is becoming thinner by the moment because it is felt, you know, it is re genuinely felt by 
by, by certain anthropologists. You know, we talk about man making an advance. No, there has been talk that man is expanding in both directions. Have you ever heard this theory? That on one end, there is a small group of people who literally are improving. In other words, man is extending itself uh, to the right and is becoming better on one end, but on the other end of the scale, man is approaching the gorilla more closely. You've never heard that theory, have you? That, uh, but, but nevertheless, there is a great body of anthropological thought that says this is so, that mankind is not moving as a group upward. It is moving as a group outward, <laughs> which is very different, which means that, that as this wave of evolution goes on, it's going on in a different form than most people thought uh, a couple of hundred years ago it was taking. And so there are more uh, gorillas among us than there were, let's say, in 1890. And on the other hand, there are more Einsteins among us than there was in 1890. That's, in essence, what I'm saying. And, and, and the great middle ground of people, and this has been a statement that has been made by at least one prominent British anthropologist, the great middle ground of people, instead of going towards the right, towards the Einstein concept, has been moving towards the left and becoming more gorilla-like as it moves. Uh, <laughs> there is a lot of evidence to prove this. If you don't think so, it would be interesting to have a retrospective show of great popular television programs as they have evolved from the year 1950 to the year 1965. That the, that the popular shows of the year 1950 had an intellectual content that is never found in shows of today. Garraway at Large, for example, which was 15 years ago, was a far more sophisticated show than any show that's on the air today in the variety format. Curious thing. Uh, radio shows. I happen to hear a tape of a radio show that was one of the top four radio shows in the country in the late 1930s. It would not even get off the ground today. That was information plays. It had an intellectual content that was staggering. Uh, and and and, uh, and you you compare that now with the constant appearance of Zsa Zsa Gabor uh, and and Eva Gabor on the Tonight Show, and you realize that popular taste has receded. It has not gone forward. It has gone backwards in many of its greatest areas of of, uh, of effect and power. Now I'm not again. Uh, I'm not. I'm not. Uh, uh, I'm not putting this down or making any comment one way or the other. It is a fact. Uh, take, take for example, the, the, the mere concept of radio itself. This is a field I know something about. Radio, in ten years, has become almost a mindless automaton. Totally. Uh, and even the, the, the stations that say they're talk stations, they endlessly interview people and draw no conclusions. Until the point now where they're just endlessly interviewing guys on the telephone who call up from the Bronx. Endless and saying, why don't they do something about Fordham Road? I tell you, the Fordham Road. On and on and on and on it goes, this great insane machine, slowly moving backward with creaking, creaking sounds coming from the axles as it does. Now, uh, on the one hand, you can say, over here, we produce the Adley Stevensons. We produce the John Kennedys. And on the other hand, we produce that fantastic collection of political cretins 
that are beginning to form national groups and are marching with signs and that are getting millions of people behind them. So you begin to see maybe that those gorillas are not alone as they sit there with their mouths hanging open in the Bronx Zoo waiting for their next shipment of bananas to come in and watching the cowboys and Indians run back and forth and shoot their 44s. And then once in a while they'll switch to a discotheque show, which is really just cowboys and Indians with a beat. And it goes on and on and on and on. <laughs> the great human evolutionary process continues. But I can tell you this, it is not a straight line process. In fact, some people say it's not a line at all. It's like a great spreading oil stain going from left to right and hardly moving forward at all. Maybe even backward from time to time. But it just spreads outward and goes on and on and on. And one day, we'll have an Ed Sullivan relay station on Mars so that they'll know what it's all about out there in the 7th Galactic Ring beyond serial parties.